Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Paul Loberman, an experienced digital banking executive who spent time at Abbey Bank in the UK, Santander in the UK and the US, and most recently as the global head of digital for retail business banking for HSBC. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Theo. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you. It's fun to have you here finally with us. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background and you actually got your law degree before you got into financial services. Now I need to be careful in what I say. Um, how did you take that turn? So, so actually what got me into financial services was that I was good at bowling, right? So um, my intention before and during and after university was to be a lawyer. But when I came out of law school, unemployment was over 10%. And I had friends that graduated the year before me that still hadn't found a training contract. And um, basically, my parents' bank manager was a bowler, and I was um, into my attempt in bowling, and asked me to come and, uh, whilst I was looking for a job, actually work at the bank at Barclays, uh, so I could be part of the Barclays bowling team. So that's really what got me into financial services. Um, and, and I joined the bank, and I started getting involved in some customer service roles in the contact center and in the branch. Um, really talking with customers and engaging, which I just started to, to love. And I thought maybe there's an opportunity for a kind of career in financial services. So I moved to Abbey uh, on the graduate scheme. I managed a couple of high street branches. Uh, then Abbey did an internal startup project for wealth management. And I joined as a relationship manager um, uh, during the strategy part of the, the project. But being a kind of internal startup with a small team, I did a lot of different roles. So I did a lot of property search and recruitment of relationship managers. I managed the budget, incentive schemes, reporting, and also UX development for kind of an early stage robo-advice product, whatever I would say, but it was kind of you know before robo-advice. Uh, and then after that, the, the business kind of moved into uh, the bank, it merged back in. And I did a lot of the decommissioning of, of, of that too. So I saw kind of the start and end of, of that business. Um, and then Santander bought Abbey and uh, came in and I became a founding member of their internal consulting team within their IT services division. Um, and we grew that team to over kind of 300 consultants uh, um, over time. But I managed the implementation of the new sales and the servicing portals, which were sat on top of the uh, the core banking platform. Um, and then in 2010, my boss called me in and said, um, would you like to go to America and do the same again for a bank that Santander bought over there called Sovereign? He gave me 24 hours to make a decision. And uh, um, I moved my family to Boston in 2010 and did the same thing all over again uh, for three years. Um, and then after that, did a bit of rebranding work um, to try and get away from core banking um, systems, technology, and implementations. Um, and then got more into the product management and innovation role. So built a, an onboarding app, 100% uh, paperless onboarding app uh, back in 2015, I think it was. Um, which which won a Select Model Bank Award, which I'm proud of. And then 
I started to get more in terms of the uh, innovation side, exploring the world of fintech, um, going to fintech conferences, meeting Brad over around that time as well. Um, and then I had the opportunity to move to HSBC to head up digital for the new business banking proposition that they were building. I moved back to London uh, and worked with a great team across the globe, rolling out new websites, mobile app, fintech lending, digital onboarding, WeChat banking integration, which was you know a lot of exciting products um, uh, for the bank. Um, and last year, I took a role in streamlining automation branch, taking some of that digital thinking to the operational processes, trying to give back more time to the staff to spend the customers rather than on the paperwork side of things. Um, but unfortunately, timing wasn't right. The bank made some operational decisions to cut a number of roles, which have been well documented. Uh, and, and my team yeah, were put at risk. So recently, I, I just left the bank. So so you and I, like you said, had met in Santander, um, I think probably end of 14 or early 15. And um, But we originally had met through Twitter. And I think, you know, one of the things that people should know about Paul is that if there's someone that, you know, people feel that they should know in the industry, he's already met them. Uh, he's like sort of the the underground networker that um, you never saw coming. And then everybody seems to know Paul. Uh, and I remember, you know, one of the first days we, we physically finally met uh, on campus at Boston at Santander was um, the day that I had to take off. So we started talking, I think, in the hallway or like you found me in my office or I don't know what ever happened. But um, we kept on talking and I said, I got to get to the airport. And he said, well, let me drive you. And I was like, oh, you're going to drive me to the airport. All right, thank you. And then so we kept on talking, kept on talking. And and that was really, you know, that was almost five, six years ago now. Um, but that's how we first met. Yeah, um, I was, I think, stalking you, basically. Um, so I think the story goes through, from um, my perspective is that when you joined the bank and you were I think, head of innovation and um, my CEO on the IT side um, you know, asked me to kind of keep an eye on you and just um, uh, and see um, what you were doing, what you were talking about, so we could be um, responsive to um, your thoughts and and uh, you know ideas and and show that we could actually provide some of the solutions that you were talking about. So that's kind of what got me, you know, um, looking at kind of what you were doing at the time, um, and then you started to blog at Finnovate. I remember in 2014 and started talking about some of the companies that I was also recommending to the bank um, to look at. So that's what really um, uh, you know, nailed it for me in terms of, okay, you and I are gonna get along yeah, just fine. Yeah, I don't think we've stopped talking since. And uh, nope. Paul, Paul and I have sort of like a, an ongoing dialogue weekly and sometimes it's you know an hour and sometimes it's three hours, but uh, it's always a good time to catch up. Uh, I, I think you know there were a lot of lessons from from our years at Santander and from both of our sort of collective years in this space. Uh, but you know both big banks and fintechs, I think, can learn about the the structure um, of Santander in terms of the way that you know they leveraged Isbon and Protobon and Geobon and other parts of the bank. But the one thing that was really interesting to me was that they had a single core, right? No other large bank, when they have expanded in the way that Santander has, really has sort of taken that core. Uh, and, and propagated across all the other banks that they've acquired across the world. Um, but that was kind of a challenge in the U.S. So let's let's talk about some of the lessons that we learned at Santander and, and how it was a unique model. Yeah, so a little bit more uh, 
background on the on the bands for the so Santander had a model of separate companies within the group providing different capabilities to its bank. Isban, which I was in, was the IT services company that did a lot of software engineering. Projiban did the management of the infrastructure and hardware. Geoban did operations. And they had other ones managing things like human resources. I think originally the idea was that these individual companies would provide their capabilities, not just to the banks within the group, but externally to other banks as a service. In reality, I think we had so much work on inside the group that we never got to a point of going externally. But each company was kind of like an SME in its own domain and worked together with the business to deliver many core banking transformations of the core system, which was called Parthenon. That core banking system, I think, was unique. That They built it in Spain for a couple of banks, uh, Santander itself and Benesto, um, and it had a single customer database across all the product systems, uh, across all the ledgers, a single product catalog um, uh, where every product could be defined, and then individual components for specific functions such as collateral um, you know, that, that they could hold for mortgages, for example. And on top of that was a layer of, of portals, which were the, the front end. I think looking back on that now, we'd probably class it as legacy technology. It wasn't built maybe on the latest cloud technologies and microservices and APIs that we know now, right? It was modular and it was flexible and, and it allowed us to react quickly to create new products overnight. So keeping the back end, we could build new front ends like the digital onboarding app that I talked about before with some real-time robotic process automation to do some of the heavy lift, lifting of the opening of the accounts in the back end. So I think that was kind of unique. But you're right, it, it didn't come without some complexity. And I, don't, I think we underestimated the complexity of the US. So as a global bank going into the US for the first time with existing core banking system, already implemented, we've done it in the UK three times in quick succession in three banks. Uh, um, so we were going to another English speaking country. Um, it was a challenge, a market where regional banks and credit unions are used to having large banking software providers and vendors for their banking software. So coming in with a European-based system was certainly unique. And, and of course, the, the regulatory environment is so complex too. So initially, when we came in and thinking we're going to implement in America, what you're really implementing is if you're implementing across, I think we were in seven states, it's like implementing in seven different countries at the same time. Right? And it, it took a while to, to I think, realize that, um, uh, you know, in that you can have different products for different states, different pricing within different states. So it really started to test the boundaries of how flexible you, know, you need to have uh, a system. I think there was a lot of experience gained um, you know, from the exec leadership team there um, in, in Isban, Projiban in the US. That was invaluable because a lot of them went on to manage the teams at a group level. Um, so I think lessons learned for anybody coming from Europe and the Challenger Bank service, um, you know, looking at uh, rather than I think it'll be easier than a full-service global bank going in, but you need to go in with your eyes open, listen to the people on the ground um, and, uh, who have got U.S. banking experience, um, you know, find some partnerships that will be helpful to help distribution. Um, and, but if you start small and focused and you manage to drive a little wedge in there, the opportunity is enormous. That's a big if, Paul. <laughs> so you spent um, 
quite a few years working on on small business uh, propositions for SMEs from a digital product perspective, now switching gear a little bit. Um, what's really interesting going on right now for small business banking from your perspective? And what are some of the interesting companies working in that space? Because if we talk about uh, small business right around the world, I would say in many countries, that is the backbone for a lot of different economies. So, um, and, and I think many would agree that that's traditionally a space that have not been well served by the big banks. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the past, um, you know, small business banking propositions were always seen as either too small for commercial banking or the retail banking side didn't know what to do with them. And, and you, you can't really just treat them as a consumer um, with a consumer-led proposition. And so they've been historically neglected or bounced back and forward between bank, in banks um, between the retail and the commercial side. I, I think digital kind of came along whatever, and, and you know the new consumer propositions um, and the fintechs and challenger banks, consumers on the personal side started to see better digital experience in their personal life. So those consumers, though, are small business owners in their own right. So they're expecting the same experiences um, as business owners, too. So, and up until really recently, I don't think they were getting anything new. Um, uh, and there wasn't really a, a, an SME-only challenger kind of proposition um, there. I, I remember when we were creating the strategy for HSBC Fusion, which was the small business banking proposition that we rolled out across 10 markets, I was at a fintech conference and in 2016, and I asked an executive from one of the challenger banks why she thought nobody was building a challenger for small business banking. And, and she told me that everybody knew they had to do it, but because they were so laser focused on solving problems for individuals and consumers at the time, it was just a matter of prioritization. So I knew then it was, it was coming. I think Tide in the UK were the first real challenger in this space that was SME only. And I remember going to their pop-up store in Shoreditch and grilling their staff on the proposition and the accounts and the features. It must have been pretty obvious that I wasn't a customer. Um, I was another spy um, uh, there as well. So I think it's taken some time. Uh, I think we're starting to see a lot of new propositions um, and services coming into the space in the last couple of years. But, but really, there's a lot of functionality to build. Right, for business owners, because they use digital tools in different ways. The jobs that they do are different. Right? There's a lot of different types of small business. So you've got micro, small, medium, self-employed. And, and, and there's a one-size-fits-all approach to business banking doesn't necessarily work. You can't just launch a carbon copy consumer account and slap a business label on it for small business owners. It, it might be the beachhead for a number of challenger banks so far, but, but they've started simple with self-employed, sole traders, one-person companies. But if you think about a business owner being the user of the account, they may need to set up payment approvals, electronic payments. Uh, they may have team members or accountants that need access to the accounts. So a lot of different functionality uh, that's, that's uh, needed. So you're starting to see the challenger banks certainly expand the scope of their customer type, types. I thought this year would be the, the year that SME banking would take off, but I think coronavirus has probably put a little bit of a different focus on it. Um, and there's obviously been a big focus on lending to SMEs. Um, but there's still some interesting propositions emerging and there's still some new players coming in and, and some large fintechs I think are interesting because they're getting into banking like Cabbage and Spotify, sorry, Shopify rather, offering 
bank accounts for uh, customers uh, now as well. So, you know, those ones that are creating small ecosystems with partners that solve different underlying problems for business owners, I think are, are, are quite interesting. Um, uh, in terms of players in that, I think if you look at Asia, um, you know, there's, there's some interesting um, companies coming out of Singapore uh, as part of the new digital banking licenses. Uh, Australia's kind of had a chance to look at a lot of um, what's gone on in in other parts of the world and take all those learnings. Um, I, I like um, Tinkoff in Russia uh, that, that kind of have a lifestyle ecosystem. They've been going for 13 or 14 years and you know, started with a credit card and or debit card and and then you know grew that out and have travel agency uh, as part of their ecosystem too. Um, and then in the UK, closer to home, we obviously got Monza and Starling, you know, with business banking propositions now and Tide. I'm also interested to watch what Alica under Richard Davis, uh, who's recently or is about to join as CEO there. Um, and then my old hunting ground, Asto at Santander. They've got leadership from eBay and Intuit. Um, so, so that's going to be interesting. I think in the US, do you think, well, my view is, is they haven't really seen a business banking challenge Challenger yet there, um, but you know, Seed that was acquired by Cross uh, Cross River, Grasshopper, which has got a huge amount of funding. I'm interested to see what 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 they do, and of course globally, I can't you know, not um, talk about uh, people without talk about HSBC and Fusion and Kinetic. Um, you know, seeing something through to from launch and beyond. You know, working with a good global team there. Um, I think that they've got uh, you know great opportunity to to do something for that bank as well. You know, you you've mentioned an awful lot of, of work and uh, experience looking at small business banking, and you know, I would I would say that um, your career as a as a spy uh, in the business, I think, has been very very good for your career because it's uh, a natural curiosity along with an ability to go in and actually have those conversations where it takes a while for people to know what your angle is. Um, so, so I like that super spy, Paul. Um, so, so kind of going into that though, because you mentioned a couple of things that made me think you're publishing this new piece uh, soon. I believe it's called build back better. And it's, it's really about the purpose of banking and how, you know, we should really be looking at how we're serving our customers right now, and especially when it comes to small businesses. How are we going to be able to shift the industry and how our purpose of being in this industry is going to help our customers most, especially in this new era of the coronavirus? Yeah, I, I think it's a really important topic uh, here, which is why I, I wrote the piece. Uh, and it's not specific to business banking, but it's just banking in general. So, so I think... The banks and the fintechs really made some Herculean efforts during this pandemic, providing access to some of the stimulus packages, various loan facilities for small businesses. Been so important, you know, providing advice, reassurance. It's not been without, you know, well undocumented problems. Sorry, documented problems, but it's unquestionably saved jobs, kept some business going um, uh, when they could have just uh, collapsed. So. I think now is an important period because as, as some of that funding and government incentives begins to wind down, I think the next few months are going to be critical for small businesses because they still need a lot of support from both their customers coming back to them and also their banks having a sympathetic approach for it. And it's not going to be easy. I think 
the Build Back Better piece was was a is actually a, a phrase that was championed by Bill Clinton after the um, Haiti earthquake in two thousand and four. And and when I was researching this piece, I found that, that disasters have often been recognised as opportunities to change and improve and to be um, a, a, an interruption to, to reset uh, and look at the previous unchallenged and inadequate policies and procedures of whatever, uh, and, and to fix them, uh, especially if they've been deficient in the in, in uh, previously. So I've always think, thought that banks have often focused more on digital optimi optimization than true disruption. And I think now is an opportunity to adopt a, a different mindset, challenge themselves to do better, to double down on innovation, but also to step up to solve problems for the greater good. So Build Back Better was all about a reset um, in the knowledge that you can still make profits for your shareholders and your investments, but at the same time as tackling social good, fairness, equality, and, and sustainability. Um, and, and making a change like that is really uncomfortable for banks and, and potentially contentious both internally and externally. But, but I think it's worth it. And there was, a, there was a study that was part of the piece that was published in the Harvard Business Review that showed over 15 years that those public companies that practice conscious capitalism performed 10 times better than those that did not. Right? So if the purpose of banking is to help solve the underlying problems for customers and small businesses, I believe that to, you can do it in a way that adds value, not just for your bank, but for the communities and the society as a whole. That is music to our ears because that's something that we do strongly believe about. Um, switching gear a little bit, you had said that banks should be more like media companies. What exactly mm -hmm. do you mean by that? So, yeah, so I, I tweeted this a couple of years ago. Um, uh, you know, the, the more I think about it, the more I was sure that banks were at the time saying, they, you know, they're trying to be, or they're being a technology company that does banking. It was, it was, you know, buzzword bingo conferences by bank execs that they were the original fintechs. And, and what I was seeing was that, you know, non-financial brands were actually starting to produce a lot more content and engaging with their customers through, you know, uh, just all types of content: videos, guides, webinars, podcasts, and not just professionally made, you know, uh, with a big marketing budget, but authentic handheld camera stories, engaging on social media, generic guides whether to help customers solve, you know, both banking and life problems. And, and you know, those are designed to engage with customers and potential customers, giving the brand a voice that's aligned with both their target audience and their values. So I think it, it resonates. But if you look at what a lot of banks and building societies and credit union social media channels uh, and even some of their websites, the content can often be quite dry. Uh, they they can be traditionally product focused. There's a lot of product info. There, there's the target sometimes more at their customers through the social channels. And I just felt that there was an opportunity being missed to do more engagement, but to humanize banking. And and the way I thought it could be done was that um, having a media type company with 
internally producing content on a regular basis that could be engaging and repurposed um, was the way to go. And I, I think there were a couple of banks that did big um, marketing, um, you know, oh, big marketing projects for, for, um, around this, whether Bradesco in Brazil was one that, that you know, um, they targeted the Lollapalooza music festival and they got a huge amount of reach for I think over 50 million users on Facebook and Instagram they reached DBS in Singapore and in Southeast Asia they did an eight episode mini series on YouTube they got over 100 million views um, and those are kind of big um, media productions but I think that you can actually chunk that up and make it you know a lot more smaller constant media production video audio podcast internal news shows um, you know, talk to customers in the day of the life of the business owners, follow departments around, humanize the bank, you know, put the people at the heart of the content and break it up, rehash it, share it across all social media channels. Because right now the social media channels for banks, they tend to be a source of complaints where customers will go to, to, to moan about the service. And, and I think you've got to look at social as a channel in the same way as you do mobile. Yeah, how can you have the communication, the conversation, you know, assist, but also the transaction and experiences? Uh, challenger banks and some fintechs are great at this. You know, they're very active. Um, you know, but banks, the website is already a channel, but their social media needs to be more of a channel in the in the way that mobile is. And content's going to be, a, a, you know, an, another battleground for banks in the future. So you, you have to be asking, you know, who do your customers want to watch? What content's going to be engaging and fun for them? What's going to give them, you know, good value and advice? And, and and what's maybe, you know, from a bank, going to inspire them and aspire to be engaged with your brand? Think about banks, right? So it's a highly regulated space. And when you think about social, when you think about content, um, they don't seem to be playing along the same rules as fintechs and other type of businesses. So one of the things that's always been interesting, you know, you've been on Twitter for a long time, as have I, and building your personal brand is very similar to building a corporate brand on social. Um, what would you tell people in the industry that are sort of hesitant to have that social presence? I mean, what, what has Twitter done for you lately? So, um, yeah, I mean, some banks have very strong social media policies, and I think that makes people hesitant in using social media um, for work, uh, or even on the personal side, whether to talk about the work type things, right? To talk about fintech. I think there are some obvious risks involved. You, you don't want to be socially engineered. Um, uh, look what happened, or allegedly happened, at Twitter um, recently as well. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, you can be a bit restricted um, uh, a little, but I think. You know, my advice is, is, you know, within the rules and the guidelines that your bank or institution uh, sets, uh, if, if you can be authentic, right? So if I saw Monzo or Starling doing something interesting, I might comment or retweet it, you know, have a voice and an opinion, but use common sense right, on there. I think one of the other things that I've learned is, is to listen to other people's opinions. So it's not just on Twitter, but LinkedIn. If you don't agree with them, you can still, you know, say you don't agree. You know, be polite, but but you get to see what's happening in the fintech world. 
Um, and even if you take some of those ideas back to your team, discuss them, think about how it might be something that adds value to your team or your customers, I think that that's um, of, of value um, to, to you. And I think above all, you know, when you're uh, you know, tweeting about, or, or especially on Twitter, you're tweeting about your organization or things that, that you know, your bank has done, you're going to get some trolls. And, and you know, especially if you're working for a big bank, you just don't engage. So regarding on whether they're trolling your company or any other topic, just not worth getting engaged. And I think you know, you you asked what's Twitter done for me lately. Um, so that tweet that um, uh, we were talking about before around the media companies is a great personal example um, of of uh, you know what it's done for me is that. You really don't know where an open comment on social media is going to take and what connections take you off into different paths. So I tweeted a few times about this media company idea and a guy called Dave Wallace um, uh, reached out to me. Uh, and Dave's been in the industry for a while, whether in the UX agency, he, he ran a company called Heath Wallace, whether it was part of WTP. Um, and, and we've been discussing this media company uh, concept and, and validating ideas between us. And Dave's gone and actually founded a new creative and technology consultancy specifically to help financial services be more active rather than passive in those social channels that I was talking about before. He's got some great co-founders who are around kind of UX and marketing backgrounds. Um, so, uh, and I've been helping them in an advisory capacity. So if I would say, well, if you don't mind me kind of giving them a plug or for, um, uh, if, if anybody's out there on banks, building societies, credit unions, that want to learn more about some of the things I was talking about and how they can use social media as a more active channel to engage your audience, then check out NMD+. The website is nmd.plus. Um, I think they're really going to be doing a great service to financial services to execute on that concept. And I'm delighted to be helping them on, on an advisory capacity. So talking about social media, um, another thing that we see that pops up quite a bit is the excitement around GPT-3 and uh, is magical capabilities to leverage AI machine learning to write code. You actually recently wrote about that as well. Um, curious to see what your thoughts are. And do you think it will suffer the same fate as Magic Leap? Perhaps too much hype too soon? Maybe, but but I mean... I found GPT-3 fascinating, the whole concept of AI and machine learning and what it can do. So I do think when I wrote that piece of a, just you know, posted out quickly because I thought there was, was really interesting uh, use cases. So I, I do think there's a lot of hype about it, um, but it feels like the speed of progress in artificial intelligence is a lot faster than what we saw with augmented reality and Magic Leap. And if you think GPT looks at over GPT-3 looks at over 175 billion parameters, which is 116x on last year's GPT-2. Right? So by putting that in the hands of developers, they they can see you know what it's like. They're touching it. They're using it. They're showcasing the capabilities. They're also highlighting a lot of flaws and issues like bias and racial bias. But, but by continuing to put it in the hands of the developers, they're, they're testing the technology with a small community who have access to it. 
can learn a lot from it and and put that into the next inter- iteration. So I, I think it's a, it's the ultimate test and learn for that. And and if AI capabilities follows Moore's law, then I think we're going to see an enormous acceleration of this in the next few years. So, so is that going to be, you know, what you're going to do next after HSBC going into a, a GPT-3 shop? Uh, or are you going to uh, head back into banking, a fintech? You know, what, what's, what's, next, what's next for Paul? So, so I, I'm not sure if I'm going to kind of be a GPT-3 expert. I've enrolled in a computer science course. So I'm, I'm uh, honing my skills this summer on, uh, on programming um, on there. But, but now with GPT-3, I'm wondering whether it's actually uh, even worth it, whether because you know, this is, is going to, you know, some of those examples are going to eradicate potentially whether having to know, um, you know code. Uh, and then there's obviously some, a lot of low-code and no-code development applications, which I find interesting at the moment. So I'm continuing to evaluate new opportunities, which which will hopefully lead me to my next role um, uh, in banking, fintech, product development, strategy, consulting. You know, there's there's a whole opportunity I think whether of there. So I'm you know building some connections, continue to be active on social media. So love for people to reach out and chat from both inside and outside financial services. I'm going to keep writing. Um, uh, you know, you keep encouraging me. Brad, to, to keep writing. So my next series of articles, I'm going to go deeper on SME ecosystems and SME super apps um, and look at who's best place to deliver those. Um, but I'm going to enjoy my summer. Um, I keep busy. I'm going to spend some time with the family, do some uh, some vacations. Uh, and I persuaded my teenage son to build a retro arcade machine with me over the summer. Um, so neither of us have any woodworking skills. Um, so, uh, but I'm looking at it as a good excuse to buy some new power tools. Okay, alrighty then. Um, we look forward to seeing your creation over Twitter until we meet again in person. And uh, thank you, Paul, for joining us today, and thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. Mm-hmm.